Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like slime, spiders and scabs. Bored, bored, bored. Yawn, yawn, <laughs> yawn. Tedium, tedium, tedium. Same, sameness, samey. Can you see where I'm going with this one, Sam? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And we'll be following the links, interestingly, in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of The View is all about politeness, the Enlightenment, social unrest, extravagant, spies, oh, and of course, E.M. Forster. Ah, interesting. Well, did you know that the history of beards is all about murderers, pirates, tax, cowardice, the Crimean War and the Reformation? And it's about protecting yourself from disease. And it's about lockdown, because I am sporting a beard at the moment. I normally hate ah. beards. They get too itchy and sort of they turn in on themselves and scratch. But I'm at that stage where I don't care. I have very little else to do with my time other than I'm, slowly I'm... <laughs> grow a beard. Um, that links to our recent podcast on the history of solitude and loneliness, when we were wondering about whether uh, hermits appeared different from their from their isolation. Yes, I certainly am appearing different, and also yeah. I'm I'm, gr I'm grey in my beard, which is which is appalling. It's reminding me of my own aged self. Mm, We've been doing a little series mortality. on contagions inspired uh, subjects, haven't we, Sam? We've done contagion. We've done soap. We've done loneliness. We've done solitude. Uh, we're going to do one today. But what else should we? What else should we do in this coronavirus-inspired series? What do you think? Oh, frustration! How about that? Frustration. I think clapping. The history of Ooh. applause. I was out last night with my my girls and my wife uh, clapping on the street. Oh, good for you. Yes. How support. about the history of balconies? Oh, the history of balconies would be brilliant. Absolutely There's a brilliant. lot going on on balconies. Anyway, anyway, let's just let's crack on. The man, the man not sitting opposite me, because we're the other side of town. We are not recording together because we're in lockdown because of coronavirus. He is the antidote. He's the human antidote to historical boredom. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Dayball. Hello, Sam, and hello, everyone. Uh, hello there across town. Um, and the man sitting not opposite me is the anything but bored, exciting, dynamic, famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Are you well, Sam? Oh, uh, yes, I am. I'm uh, teetering on the edge of boredom. Are you bored? Uh, but, uh, the, well, the, the podcast, among other things, is keeping me, keeping me sane and keeping me alive. So um, I've, I've enjoyed the irony of thinking about the history of boredom. Do you know, the irony of lockdown and working from home is that my workload has increased massively uh, because everything at the university has gone online. We are teaching online, meetings are online and everyone is booking in meetings to get things done. So it's actually increased the amount of work that I'm doing. So I am anything but bored. And I also have I also have uh, two daughters at home who we are homeschooling. Ah, in the holidays, that's not very fair. In the holiday, ah, uh, you should always homeschool, Sam. Always. <laughs> My kids are properly on holiday, even though they're stuck at home. So there we go. <laughs> Excellent. Um, boredom. Well, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful subject for the historian to tackle, isn't it? And it's it's one. It's a bit like what were we were talking about the other day. Um, it's it's like loneliness in that boredom is something that historians have only recently started to think about. Yes, yes, and I've been reading a. Uh, an interesting new book by Oxford University Press, 
uh, by Jeffrey A. Auerbach called Imperial Boredom, Monotony and the British Empire. And for me, I'm going to be talking about how boredom is all about empire. Uh, but let's start with our taxonomy of boredom. How do you how do you start thinking about boredom? You can think about boredom as a concept. You can think about it in terms of monotony, sameness. The French call it ennui, which basically is, is listlessness. You can think about humdrum every day, people going stir crazy, cabin fever. One of the reasons that we're so obsessed with it today in modern society, as with loneliness, is it's connected to depression and mental health. But it isn't simply that. It's, it's about being distracted, not being interested in something, something boring you. I think historically, if we think about how it's emerged over time, rather like loneliness, which we saw appearing around 1800, at least linguistically, we see the emergence of boredom as a concept emerging in the 18th century. This isn't to say that you can't find humdrum, everyday boredom in the ancient world and beyond, but Historians have linked it to industrialization with a new sense of time, this sense of the foreman's fob watch, keeping everyone working to time, and also the invention of leisure. And as you find leisure invented, in other words, free time for people, there is enormous pressure on people to actually fill their time in a useful way. You can also link it to the rise of the individual and what it is to be an individual human being with a sort of cultural and social hinterland that needs to be filled. You can think about it connected to technologies. And we can think about the rise of trains and train journeys and ships and steam and distances. We can think about the rise of bureaucracy, so increased paperwork and the drudgery of doing that. We can connect it to empire, the role of soldiers, the role of conquest, all of those kinds of things. We can think about it in terms of philosophers, philosophers and boredom. And philosophers have had an awful lot to say about boredom throughout the ages. Um, boredom is the root of all evil, the despairing refusal to be oneself, Soren Kierkegaard. Arthur Schopenhauer, the two enemies of human happiness are pain and boredom. Boredom, the desire for desires, is Leon Tolstoy. Thomas Carlyle, I have a great ambition to die of exhaustion rather than boredom. We can think about it as an emotion. You know, so how does, uh, how does boredom manifest itself physically and mentally? We can think about occasions of boredom, being locked in prison, being locked in a cabin in the snow. We can think about the monotony of factory jobs. We can think about soldiers and the front line. We can think about boredom across the life cycle in contrast with things that are interesting and exciting. So children might find museums boring. People at work might find work boring during their work life. Widowhood is possibly a time for boredom. Hospitalisation is also a time for boredom. And then there is also the, the physical manifestation of boredom, which I think is brilliant. How do you mark time? And this reminded me of what you said the other day in our podcast about loneliness, the way in which people would mark out the days in prison. Or you could think about the way in which people tap their fingers when they are bored, or they smoke because they need to have something to do, or they tap, or they fiddle, or they check their phones 52 million times a day. That, for me, is a brief taxonomy of boredom, Sam.
That's amazing. Um, I, I really, really was amazing. I've always been fascinated in the way that time flies when you're not bored. And I think I can estimate, James, that you have just been talking for approximately seven hours. Completely the opposite. No, uh, I thought that was wonderful. And um, I really loved the finger tapping. Yes. The, um, the finger the physical manifestation of, of being bored and struggling with time, foot tapping, leg jiggling, whatever it might be. I absolutely love that. And um, what you do when you're bored smoking was a really interesting one. My kids um, just stand outside the fridge eating. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I don't get that bored. I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but I'm just, I'm not somebody who gets bored. No, no, I, mean, I was, one of my questions here, I, I, I've said, uh, what bores you? And I've highlighted it. What bores me? Um, yeah, and you people. say you don't get bored. People. people, people, and conversations. People. I mean, I find people boring at times. That's that's my bugbear. That's how I get yeah. bored when you're stuck in conversations that you don't want to be in, and that and yeah. and things need to move. Or meetings. I find meetings often very very boring. I'm often in the kind of meetings that that are very slow and there's no agenda properly. Well, there is an agenda, but it but academics have the ability to talk endlessly about things from all sorts of perspectives. <laughs> Dig in your own grave there, mate. <laughs> um, I, then I know every exactly meetings um, I run. I was, I was looking at um, Samuel Pepys, as always, because he's, he's, a, he's a great source for everyday life. And something I do want to talk about is how you actually get into the history of boredom. And one, one way, of course, is to find historical evidence of people saying they were bored and to look at look at the the, the um, situation surrounding that. It's a very, very obvious way of doing it. And I'm not entirely sure it's actually uh, very useful unless they particularly comment on something being dull or monotonous. Anyway, um, there's a great example um, from Samuel Pepys. And he's been out. This is the great 17th century diarist. He goes to a party. Thence to Blackwall and there to Mr. Johnson's to see how some works upon some of our repaired ships go on, and at his house eat and drank and mighty extraordinary merry, too merry for me whose mother died so lately, but they know it not, so cannot reproach me therein, though I reproach myself. And in going home, and many good stories of Sir W. Batten and one of Sir W. Penn, the most tedious and silly and troublesome, he forcing us to hear these stories ever I heard in my life. So here we are with Pete uh, walking around London being driven silly, literally silly with boredom because someone is droning on and telling him stories he doesn't want to listen to. And again, it happens to him in 1662, up and put on my new scallop and is very fine to church, then to church again and heard a simple Scot preach most tediously. So we've got some good historical examples there of Pepys finding people boring. I'm not sure. Well, I, I didn't think I was going to say I find people boring until you said it. And then I realised that I do. <laughs> Most people you come into contact with bore you. <laughs> Except for me, of course. Well, well, absolutely. Um, but it, it also depends upon all sorts of things. Like uh, if you're at a party, maybe you've had a few drinks and you've got a bit of time and patience to listen to someone and then find out what's interesting about about them, which what, what can interest you. Yes. And you can turn it that way. But um, often it's it's linked with time with me. Um, but job repetitive jobs, I think, are really, in, really interesting. Yes. Um, I've done some staggeringly boring jobs in my time. I mean, monumentally dull. 
uh, one of which was um, chipping rust off an anchor chain of a ship in a dry dock in Milford Haven in Wales. And I uh, arrived there, it was, I was working on, on a big square rig ship and was given a hammer and some safety goggles. And there were, I don't know, uh, several hundred metres of large rusty anchor chain. And I just, I simply had to chip the rust off this anchor chain. Um, and I and also if you think about being on ships as well, being on night watch, so you're standing on deck by yourself mm. in the dark for four hours and you can't listen to anything because you need to have all of your wits about you. And that's that's the kind of an extraordinary time. And I'd, I'd really urge people to 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 do it because you, you very quickly get past boredom because you've got a job to do. You're looking out. Um, but you're you're my my I've always had the ability for my mind to wander very successfully. Um, I also remember doing a, a job for um, for the post office one Christmas, doing a night shift um, letter sorting, mm. uh, which I found seriously difficult because it required just enough attention for you not to be able to let your mind wander, yeah. <laughs> but not enough attention to stop you getting bored. But usually, give me uh, I just need something to write 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 down with. I need a pen and a piece of paper or pencil or whatever, uh, and then I'm I'm completely for hours and hours upon end but it's when those are denied me that it, it all goes a bit wrong i think that's it it's when you're engaged in monotonous tasks like that it's when the monotony also takes up your brain power so you don't have the yeah. freedom to think but but this yeah. idea this idea of having time on one's hands to think and do things i think is incredibly can be incredible incredibly creative there's a professor an art history professor in the United States. I can't remember which university, but Harvard or somewhere like that. Um, and she makes her students go and stand in front of a painting for three hours and not wow. move. And the yeah. idea is that, you know, you think, oh, God, what do you do? Stuck in front of a painting for three hours. But this idea of slow looking enables yeah. you to see different aspects of it, to focus on different features over that period of time that will allow you... I totally you... get that. You need to kind of punch through a wall of, of boredom. Yeah. Or your punch, and then you, it may, makes you immensely more creative once you've done your 45 minutes or whatever it is. Exactly. I completely get that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, shall I talk to us about um, Empire of Boredom? Um, uh, yes, just let me just say one thing very quickly no, before we do, go on do. to place, because I think Empire is also quite... Um, Linked with location. Yes. Um, I, I just found this little quote, which I wanted to share with you. So this is to do with a um, French admiral who was in charge of the vanguard of the Allied French and Spanish fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar. And he was captured and he was um, brought back to England as a prisoner of war. And he was kept because he was an officer. He was kept on parole and he went to Tiverton. So he had a lovely time in Tiverton. And we don't really know really very much about what he got up to at Tiverton, apart from one small sentence in which he said, Tiverton is a small town, fairly pleasant, but which seemed to me especially dull. <laughs> which I love. I love so, Tiverton. Love Tiverton. I know. Um, the idea of a, of a location causing boredom or a location being dull, um, I think is also really interesting because we can associate with that. And it was obviously something which, which happened in the past. Yeah, Absolutely. So I've been reading this this book that the lovely people at Oxford University Press sent me uh, called Imperial Boredom, Monotony and the British Empire by uh, an American professor called Jeffrey Auerbach. Um, and I was fascinated by it because what it does 
is it takes the standard interpretation of the British Empire as something that is heroic, that is adventurous, it's, it's exciting, it's about discovery, it's about conquering, it's all these sort of brave individuals who go off around the world. Um, and what it does is it turns that on its head and it says actually that when you look at the everyday lived experiences of most of these people, it was full of monotony and tedium. And I'll just read you a quote from the, from the book. This is on page three. Imperial boredom argues that despite the many and famous tales of glory and adventure, a significant and overlooked feature of the 19th century British imperial experience was boredom and disappointment. Diaries, letters, memoirs and illustrated travel accounts, both published and unpublished, demonstrate that all across the empire, British men and women found the landscape monotonous, the physical and psychological distance from home enervating, the routines of everyday life tedious and their work dull and unfulfilling. And what he does is he's basically read a ton of diaries and letters correspondence, memoirs, all sorts of things, and then organised it into a series of themes connected with empire. And just as you were saying about ships and life on board, ships being boring, there is a chapter on voyages. So you think about the vast distances that people would have had to travel. It took during the 19th century about three to six months to travel to India by ship. Imagine being locked in for that amount of time, the kind of cabin fever that you'd have suffered. The landscapes, you know, often we think of landscapes in these strange new worlds as exotic and exciting, but imagine being on a train rolling through the desert or whatever, but probably not a train in a desert, but you know what I mean, rolling through this unending landscape, actually, after you've looked at it for a while, becomes quite boring. The governors themselves, the people who are in charge of different parts of the empire, found that their their life was full of paperwork and bureaucracy. And if you think about the reason that some of these people went into these kinds of careers, you know, they are from elite upper class circles. The overriding drive for many of those people was a sort of dilettante, gent genteel leisure, sort of rather like a sort of Bertie Worcester with a reading list. Um, and actually, the drudgery of day-to-day -day life was endless sort of meetings and and paperwork and visits to places. He also has a chapter on the soldiers and the tedium of being a soldier, being in barracks, um, the, the job of a soldier basically being, you know, being, you know, certain feverish experiences of sort of bang, 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 but most of it is sort of on the on the parade ground marching around uh, and then settlers themselves once you've gone and settled in a particular place once you're there you can be really bored of it and there are some great sort of diaries by women writing home but I wanted to I wanted to just share with you an example of a soldier who finds his life uh, in uh, in Africa really really boring indeed and this is a guy called Robert Norris, who came from Norfolk, and he's the son of an Anglican vicar. And about the age of 21, in 1846, he joins the army and he, he go, has all sorts of you know postings in various places. 
But between about 1847 and 1850, the regiment that he's in was in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, it wasn't South Africa at the time, but in, in, in Africa. Um, and you can see from this that there are interesting aspects to what he's doing. But if you have a look at a typical entry for the first week of August 1848, you will see exactly why he, he was bored. Wednesday the 2nd, drill as usual. Thursday the 3rd, parade at 10. Friday the 4th, parade at 2 o'clock and drill. Saturday the 5th, heavy marching order parade. Sunday the 6th, church parade as usual. Tuesday the 8th, commanding officers drill at 2 o'clock. Wednesday the 9th, parade at 6 o'clock, wet, marched back again. I mean, you just get this sense of absolute monotony of this of this soldier's life. So there we are, uh, the British Empire, uh, corrupt, moribund institution as it is, uh, is in fact all about boredom. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that diary, uh, one of the things we have to do as historians is to, is to read through the lines to a certain extent. Um, I mean, there might be lots of stuff that he's not writing down as well. I mean, he might have a very good, bantery, nice life, playing cards, having fun um, with all of his mates around him, yeah. um, which is completely lost. So if he's only choosing to write down the official things that he was doing, you, it doesn't mean he was literally sitting down doing nothing for the rest of the time. Um, and there's a whole kind of um, a, a living of life which is missed with, with diary entries that are just like that. Um, there's one by a naval surgeon called Edward Cree, which actually appears in the same book. And he describes, um, actually, the, the author picks out, says that, you know, Cree obviously found life very, very boring. Um, but there are I examples in his diaries where he explains what he's been doing. And so you could actually use the same diary to argue that he had very successfully filled his time. Yeah. So we know that he was reading, drawing, walking on deck, eating, drinking, sleeping, playing, uh, talking, um, playing games uh, primarily. Uh, he even quotes that um, making but slow progress towards China, weather intolerably hot, but he adds the time passes pleasantly enough on board. So it's actually, you know, the more I've been thinking about it, the more difficulty I can see in using diary evidence to actually prove the existence of boredom. Because, yes, they may have been bored at one point in their lives. Who isn't? I mean, that's a kind of a perfectly normal thing. But then to, to kind of say that they, they were bored all the time is to, is to miss out the, the sort of the beautiful, joyful richness of life, yeah. um, which I think historians have been well, uh, so good at recreating. It's, almost, it's, it's something kind of almost slightly ahistorical about it. Yes. For me, that <laughs> sounds like a critique of the book. Uh, well, no, I think it's a very, very good book. However, it's um, there's something about it which bothers me massively. Yes, and I'm not, I'm, and I'm, I'm not sure I've quite got to the bottom of it. No, I think um, you know, proving people aren't doing anything is fundamentally difficult, isn't it? Yes, for me, yeah. for me, it's a great, it's a great work in the archives. It's read a lot. It's challenging. Uh, it theoretically, it's a little light. Um, it, it describes itself as a contribution to the history of emotion. Um, and I didn't really see that. There's no sort of conceptualization of what boredom means, really. Boredom is yeah. literally like being saying that you are bored, it seems. And there's there's very little more sophisticated than that. Whereas I think, you know, unpacking boredom as a concept you know, is something that that needs to be done and is actually really, really interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I think one way of doing that. Go on. Yeah. Sorry, how does it manifest itself as a 
as a as an emotion how, how structurally how does it work you know and th and if you're thinking about an, an emotion that is physical that is mental you know how does that how does that work historically in that particular yeah. period um, and and, one and, of the key things we need to understand is, is if people experience boredom differently in the past. Yes, yes. You know, um, and also, I suppose one way of looking at it is to actually say, well, what's the opposite of boredom? Hmm. Uh, and I, I found one, one explanation here saying it's a state of peak enjoyment, energetic focus and creative concentration, which I loved. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of I really identified with that where where there is no time for boredom, there's no space. You're completely consumed with the fire and drive to create something. Yeah, uh, which which I which I really love, and, and I think that often a lot of people who are like that, certainly creative people, ne necessarily have to go through a period of of not working, of being still, of being bored, to allow a fiery, uh, you know, a fiery moment to to appear. Yeah, but yeah, and also yeah. the way the way it's experienced is interesting. There is I've looked a little bit just very briefly at the and there's an anthropology of boredom. Of course there is because you know anthropologists have got yeah. hold of it and they've explored what boredom means to other people in different places. There's a wonderful one from an Aboriginal settlement just north of Alice Springs, and they use the term slightly differently to us. So in mainstream English, the term boring is generally a negative label. So James is boring. Doesn't, you know, doesn't reflect positively on someone called James who is not you, James. No. <laughs> but, but, Thank um, you, Sam. In this, in this settlement, it, if directly applied to people, the term is kind of used in an active sense. So there's a phrase here, Millie must be boring, comma, all alone now, meaning that she must feel lonely after she'd been left behind. And I love that phrase, she must be boring. Uh, so not boring person, but she's enduring the the business of being bored. Yeah, which I think which was um, fascinating. And there's another example here talking about a dog that they've dropped off at a different settlement, saying that he must be boring for us, poor thing. Which I loved. Um, so it's a uh, it, it's not necessarily boredom as we know it, but a lack of social connectivity, yes. of loneliness, or or pining for other people, pining for. Um, for human contact. So it is connected to it's connected then to what we were talking about in the past two podcasts about loneliness and, and solitude, about yeah. being being on one's own, that this idea that in order to be interested and engaged, you need to be somehow in company and in communal yes. in more communal societies. I imagine with, that that aren't all about this rise of the individual. I imagine that's very much the case. Um, and so one of the things, this, this idea of peak flow of concentration, uh, which I thought was great. So one of the ways of looking at boredom actually is to see, to study in a, in a more of a productive way rather than just finding evidence of people saying I'm bored. I, I found a wonderful Roman one. Um, do you remember we did one on graffiti or Roman I do, walls? yes. And there was a quote um, um, from, you know, this is centuries ago. And someone says that the, the, the quote about the wall being boring or, or um, how does the wall cope with the boredom of people's mindless dottering? So... Um, it was written from the perspective of the wall, wasn't it? Complaining about how rubbish and boring everyone's graffiti yes. was, which, <laughs> which I thought was good. Anyway, the, um, so for me, I, I think looking at it in a more positive way um, by looking at the way people have dealt, uh, uh, tried to sweep away the kind of the dusty cobwebs of boredom is much more interesting. And I've always been fascinated in games. Hmm. Um um, we, we're currently playing all sorts of games at the moment in the house, uh, two of which I've invented, three of which I've invented. I've always been one who makes up games, never happy to just play some games other people have invented. Um, and so I, I'm fascinated in cards particularly and dice 
and also the way in which the actual I've started to get into this the way the which the game that you play reflects upon the person who invented the game hmm. do you have any idea what I mean by that well, I've seen I, you I, play uh, Fruit Ninja before <laughs> with actual fruit and swords yes <laughs> cricket with fruit and swords. So I, I yes. can imagine what the kinds of games you've been inventing around the house. But we've also been um, learning new games. So uh, we are great card players in the house, and I've recently learned to play cribbage mm. um, because the, the general understanding is if you have a card game for two, the, 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 not necessarily the most popular, as in the most played, but the one that has the most loyal following. If you, if you ask people what the, the, you know, the best, the most enjoyable, the funnest card game for two is, then they say cribbage, and I've been learning to play that with my kids, and it's it is a truly fantastic game, and I'm really really enjoying it, and I like it because if you think of um, uh, I suppose you could say that a poker is more about aggression, intimidation, uh, I don't know, opportunism. Um, it's about kind of knocking out the opponent. Bridge is more about strategy, working with your partners, a certain kind of killer instinct with that, but. Um, cribbage has got a kind of a very light-hearted, joyous nature to it. It's a bit silly, uh, but deep down, it's also very, very strategic. And I've been looking into the the, the guy who invented it. Um, the cribbage was invented by a guy called Sir Jonathan Suckling, um, early 17th century. James, you might well have come across him. He was the second child and elder son of the six children of Sir John Suckling, who was Secretary of State uh, around Elizabeth the first time. Hmm. Um, an absolute Cad, I think, is the only way to describe him. Was he a and bounder he a, as well? Absolutely a bounder. Yeah, and uh, he, 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 a real gambler. Um, and there's some wonderful quotes about him. Oh, you'll like this one. In 1635, Suckling sold the estate of Barsham, Suffolk, to his uncle Charles, but in September won £2,000 gaming from Randall MacDonald, Vice Count Dunluce, at nine pins played at Tunbridge Wells. And at an unspecified time, he characteristically, quoting here, made a magnificent entertainment in London for a great number of ladies of quality, all beauties and young, which cost him many hundreds of pounds. Where were all the rarities that this part of the world could afford, and the last service of all was silk stockings and garters and gloves. Um, so there's a nice little reference to gloves, James being an Thank excessive you. glove historian. Thank there. you. But he, he invents this game called Cribbage, and... I, I think, and some of these historians of cards say that you can almost sort of sense the, the character of this guy in it, because there are lots of silly points and silly rules. It's a, it's, it's a very, very entertaining game. But it also makes you think about how you actually invent games, which I like, mm. uh, and the, the way that games reflect on, the, on, on who they're for. Um, you know, do you want to invent a card game or a board game? Is it a game for adults or for children? Has it got lots of complicated rules or is it one that can simply be employed and enjoyed by absolutely everyone? And because of that, it means that card games particularly have a fascinating social history of, of their own. Who played what, when and why? So during the First World War, officers tended to play contract bridge. It would seem to be a more um, educated form. Soldiers played three-card brag, which is a game I play a lot. Um, very simple form of poker, but it's brilliant fun. Uh, the French played different games. Uh, and there are books about this. There are paintings about this. If you're interested in the way that boredom was got rid of, I would urge you all to look at a painting called The Scat Players by Otto Dix, painted in 1920. It's a Dardai style 
image of German soldiers playing scat, a game that they all played played a lot. And it's um, it's a sort of grotesque, monstrous image showing mutilated, shell-shocked, depraved members of society. Um, but actually, these people at play in the midst of a war. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful image. So I just wanted to say that the whole history of whether it's cards or dice has its own, own own history that you can enjoy and explore in terms of books about it, in terms of collections in museums. There's a there's a there's a, a playing card museum in Spain. Uh, I really want to go there actually. Uh, art people, there are images of people playing games, images of people fending off boredom. Um, there's a whole history of art, art history of that as well, um, and it's rather inspired me to do much more. And looking at you know um, collections of, of of playing cards, actual cards that have survived that were owned by famous people. Look at the collections of the British Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum. Um, and one thing I've come across recently, having now become recently obsessed with cribbage, are the amazing collection of cribbage boards all over the world um, from history. A lot of them made in whalebone, because cribbage was played a lot by whalers in the Atlantic in the 19th century. So this is games to alleviate boredom. We, should do, some, yeah. we should do something on the history of cards. I think the history of cards mm. is fascinating. The politics of cards, often on the back of, of cards, uh, you'd yeah, have political messages, well. political Ooh. messages and symbols on them. There's a lot in the Restoration period, the Civil War period, about politically uh, freighted cards. I it just struck a bell that I came across a, a pack of cards made of the Spanish Armada. So each Ooh. card displaying a scene from the Spanish Armada, which was made a century after the Spanish Armada. So in 1680, and it's all to do with um, Charles and then James, who's Catholic, and the fear that James, the Catholic king, is going to become a king. So they've stopped making playing cards and they're, they're yeah. playing with this anti-Catholic sentiment. Yeah, we should do something, oh. definitely do something on cards. So I want to take us to post-World War Two Canada and boredom Ooh. here and go back to the idea that I was talking about industrialization and, and new concepts of time. And one of the things that they did in post-war Canada was they tried to give the workers much more free time. So limit the hours of work time and bring in an increased leisure time. And what this led to throughout the 1950s through until about the 1970s is a kind of middle class moral dilemma, in, uh, which was about policing the leisure time of working class people. So in other words, they thought, what on earth are the people going to do with this leisure time? They will, you know, they'll turn to crime, there'll be domestic violence, all that kind of thing. So all kinds of post-war anxieties that are that are sort of located in the working class family. And there's a brilliant newspaper article in the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Tribune uh, from around this period. And I just want to read you it. Uh, and it says, and it, it, it strikes... Um, it strikes a chord with what we're experiencing today. And the title of it is Marooned at Home All Day with Children. What's to be done about mum's boredom? Uh, I love the sort of the rhyming bit there. And then there are two parts to this. There's the husbands have their say and then the wives have their say. Um, so the bit on husbands have their say. Husbands should be lovers. That's the view of Winnipeg husbands asked what they should do to help overcome the drab reality and boredom of their wives' daily household chores. To the housewife locked in the home with small children, the outside world isn't a gay place of bright lights, clubs, cafes and entertainment, bustling, lively. 
It's that big grey place out there. From it, occasionally she sees the milkman, the breadman, or the store delivery man. She may bundle up the children for a jaunt to the corner market, and the most excitement in her uneventful week may be Junior cutting his finger or the baby smearing jam on the clean floor. What can a husband do about it? A number of Winnipeg husbands and one bachelor were asked. Ron Oakes, father of five, said, We have a hard and fast rule about that. We get out at least once a week. It's something to look forward to. I'm in an exciting business and my wife is interested in it too. This helps to keep things rolling smoothly. We do reach this sort of crisis as everybody does, but I think getting out once a week is important and that's what we do. And now just to read that the wives have their say. Husbands should smarten up. What's this boredom bit? True to the feminine trait of answering a question with a question, Winnipeg wives ask this when queried about what husbands should do to help them overcome the boredom of their daily chores. Most of the wives and mothers I contacted who were confined to their houses all day took exception to the word boredom. Before they were prepared to do level criticism at the husband's behaviour towards them after he gets home from work, they wanted that cleared up. Whatever gives men the idea life in the home with young children is boring, they asked. We don't have time to be bored. When the word monotony was substituted for boredom, the wives felt ready to answer. One thing the husband should do is to flop into an armchair after dinner and utter nary a word to his wife until the late movie fades out. Every wife without exception was quick to point this out. So there we are. There's the, there's the Canadian Winnipeg Times. Winnipeg Tribune. <laughs> the places we go, James, exactly. on our rambles through history. Exactly. I love, I love it. <laughs> Um, well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to our history of boredom. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the histories of the Unexpected Twitter feed on at UnexpectedPod. And uh, there is historiesoftheunexpected.com for everything else. Maybe some show notes, some stuff we do with schools, and um, a little bit of information about our live shows, which are all temporarily on pause, but we promise we'll all be coming back. Thanks, guys, and we will bring you balconies and applause very soon. Bye. Stay safe, guys. Bye.